Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Cross Wires. It's James here and this week we have a fantastic guest to talk about something that's actually really important to me and I hope really important to everyone else. A lot of us like video games, we like computer games and if you've got accessibility issues, particularly physical disabilities, that might prevent you from being able to use a normal controller, you know, like your your typical PS5 controller or your, your typical mouse and keyboard. So, ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome Alex Dunn from Enable Play. Hi, Alex. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. I think I reached out to you on Twitter because I saw something that you posted about Enable Play. I'm like, that's something I really want to talk about on Crosswires because it is cool tech and it's helping solve a problem in technology. It's not just, oh, this is really cool. It's actually helping people access technology. So before we kick into what Enable Play is... Can you tell people a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about your background and uh, give people an introduction of who Alex is? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Alex Dunn. On the internet, I'm Suave Pirate uh, because Alex Dunn is a very generic name. Uh, I work a lot in sort of the Microsoft tech stack. And uh, when I sort of started getting into the internet presence of it, uh, I found out there's multiple Alex Dunn developers at Microsoft. So I was not discoverable. I used my name generator that I wrote when I was like 10 years old and came up with Swap Pirate and just sort of went with it. So if you're looking for me there, you might have to find me at Swap Pirate, um, <laughs> including on LinkedIn. Like my LinkedIn URL is even Swap Pirate. That's, nice. It's a whole thing. But uh, I'm, I'm the, the founder of Enable Play, uh, and I'm also the chief product officer at a company called Voiceify. Uh, so for the last you know five or six years, I've been mostly working in uh, sort of enterprise level artificial intelligence and, and voice assistance for the most part. Uh, and for the last couple of years, I've been really focused on assistive tech and applying AI and, and, and uh, cloud native applications to uh, help people with disabilities, essentially, at, at its core. Uh, so that's me. Awesome. So assistive tech is, you know, it's quite a big field and it's in, in incredibly important. You know, we look at you know, making operating systems, making platforms accessible for those with, you know, such a wide range of disabilities. You know, speaking for myself as someone with a visual impairment, one of the reasons I... Now, this is not as much of a case anymore, but it used to be the case that macOS was far better for mm. visual visual accessibility than Windows. I would say it's fair comment that Windows 10 and Windows 11 have really caught up. They are much better now, uh, and I, get, I can now daily drive Windows if I need to. But, you know, things from switch controls, things from, um, you know, we look at the setup that uh, the late Professor Hawking had. Yep. Just some incredible technology. So I guess the question is, tell us a little bit about um, what got you interested in assistive technology. Yeah, so it, it actually started uh, a few years ago. I have a, a member of my family who's younger. He's, he's sort of in his preteen years. And uh, he has a couple physical disabilities. Uh, and, you know, basically I was trying to play games with him, uh, with some of my siblings too, and saw a, a little bit of his struggle in keeping up. And it wasn't because he didn't have the ability to understand what was going on. It's not because he, he couldn't process what he wanted to do. But it was the actual, like, reaction time of thought to, to executing something in Minecraft, which was difficult. Mm. Uh, and I sort of looked at that problem and was like, that's kind of ridiculous that like playing a game, even a very you know simple one in terms of input and speed as Minecraft, having barriers simply because the inputs are, are weird. Like if mm. you use a Switch, your joysticks are tiny. There's yeah. always this sort of common move that's called the claw that people have to do. Or like if you need to use your thumbs, for example, to press buttons on either side of your controller while still moving your joysticks, how do you do that? You you have to like pull your index finger around to either move the joysticks or press the buttons, and it's like 
even for someone that's able-bodied, it's uncomfortable after a yeah. while. But, you know, I sort of saw that and, and uh, I jumped in not sort of, you know, head on into all assistive tech, but I, I wanted to make playing games easier for him. Uh, you know, I, I've come from a family of people that have always grown up playing video games and my favorite series has always been the Souls series, so Dark Souls, uh, Demon Souls, Sekiro, Bloodborne, and now Elden Ring. And, like, they're sort of notorious for being the most difficult games. And having that sort of realization that, you know, like, this person would never be able to play them with me, or, like, the way that I do, and, like, even though they, they should be able to, right, um, was sort of the driving factor. So I actually started looking at a number of ways to try to make playing Dark Souls specifically easier as a starting point. So I was like, if I can solve it for the hardest game, then I could potentially solve it everywhere. Um, And I went down a few different rabbit holes. Uh, I I talk about this like really in depth in in one of my conference talks, but it's a, it's a pretty funny story. So my first attempt at doing it was not what enabled play is today. Not even close. Uh, It was training a machine learning model, a computer vision model on recognizing the game itself to know basically when you're in danger, like if, if you're being attacked to essentially make a bot that would sort of help supplement oh, things. Okay. Right. So yeah. like if an enemy is attacking you dodge out of the way, or at least start to sort of incrementally add those things or like, Hey, there's an opening to attack. You should attack. Um, the problem that came from that was uh, <laughs> in order to make that happen for every game, I have to train a model on every single game to recognize like all their different States and, when you're in danger and when you're not. There's a lot of false positives that happen, and there's a lot of, of missed events that happen. And uh, I actually burned a graphics card trying to run this model while playing the game. It's a graphically intense game, plus you know running a, a pretty heavy model and also trying to like do real-time training against it. Uh, totally cooked a, a GTX 1080 Ti, so... <laughs> Ouch. It's, yeah. Then I, then I got into, I was like, well, that's just not going to work. Um, so my second attempt was a little bit simpler, and it was basically detecting, like, combat music or, like, mm. boss music in games, right? So, uh, hey, we, the music's getting louder, things are happening, let's maybe start supplementing some inputs. Uh, and that was just useless. And then, ironically, I was playing a different game. I was playing uh, Call of Duty Warzone with some of my friends, and we always have this joke um, from... Uh, I think it's Land of the Lost with Will Ferrell, and he's running from a T-Rex, and he's yelling, Serpentine! Serpentine! And he's sort of zigzagging around. <clears throat> or we say that all the time whenever we're trying to, like, you know, dodge people. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and, and I sort of had this realization, like, what if I could just yell Serpentine and it did that, right? And, and I work in voice tech. I was like, this is way more in line with what I should be doing. Uh, so I started down this route. I actually built all of these original prototypes on Twitch. So I had a, a, a great group of people in chat that were... Uh, sort of helping bring ideas to life with it as well. But uh, we started with looking at um, different different types of devices we wanted to use for, for voice input and starting to process those things and turn them into game actions. Uh, so we actually set it up to, to work with Alexa, uh, but the whole process was, was long. Um, I could definitely like talk about that for, for hours and hours about all the blunders we had with with. USB not working with uh, with having to say super long sentences to have a super small thing happen, but in the end, you know, going through those those many iterations over and over again, um, and getting to the point where we had something that worked, and then validating it by by putting it in the hands and and on the desks of people that needed them, we found that we are sort of you know helping solve a problem that's still there. And there's a lot of great assistive tech out there, even in gaming. I mean. The Xbox Adaptive Controller oh, yeah. is, is one of the biggest sort of jumps, I think, that we've seen in, in making games more accessible. 
Um, but it, it's still something that requires a lot of manual setup. You can't just pick the Xbox adaptive controller up and get running. You got to buy a custom kit or you're going to work with a group like Able Gamers or Special Effect or uh, uh, a number of others to basically help get your special setup. They get really expensive eventually because you're paying for custom gear. The Xbox adaptive controller is not that expensive relative to other gaming gear, but like building on top of that can be. And I wanted to, to make something that just sort of was the whole package, you know, in one little box. Yeah. Uh, that you could use and and still use these other tools alongside it too. So that was sort of what what got me going into it. And you know now for the last couple of years, it's been uh, it's been an exciting journey of of working with people with with varying disabilities, to understand their problems, and and help to continue to grow the platform into something that uh, you know can do more for people. And not just in gaming either. I mean, it's it started in gaming, but ended up growing into things that people are using in schools uh, to help make computer labs more accessible. Mm. Uh, people are using it in, in speech and occupational therapy to uh, use the the models that I have, which can also recognize nonverbal speech, so like non sort of uh, worded speech for people that are nonverbal, to start to go through their speech therapy exercises and and turn those into things that are fun. So instead of doing sort of these manual like, yep, you did this muscle movement right in your jaw, to recognizing their face movements and muscle movements with computer vision and doing it to then ironically play a game so we sort of help gamify the the therapy process too which is really exciting so there's a lot like you know when you get down to it it's basically like ai on the edge turned into usb input there's a lot of 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 ways to apply that just like any way that you could use a keyboard or mouse which is fantastic and incredibly exciting um because you know i think as you hinted at when we talk about you know why in the at the highest level we say someone has a disability Unfortunately, people tend to get grouped by their type of disability, and yeah. it's it's not that simple. Someone can have you know a visual impairment, but it will be completely different to someone else's. Someone can have a physical disability, but they will have a different range of motion, a different totally. set of physical skills to someone, even someone with that same medical condition. Exactly. And that's it's sounding like that's where enabled plays come in because it's adaptive to their needs. So. Without much further ado, let's talk about Enable Play. So the base level, I know from what I've seen, and this is doing a cursory glance before we started um, sort of chatting, is at my heart it's powered by Raspberry Pi, which I think is insanely cool yeah. to start with. So, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about what it is, how, and then kind of how it works, and give us a little bit of a walkthrough of what Enable Play takes to set up and what it is actually doing. Yeah, so uh, Enable Play at its core is is a set of devices and a platform for letting you ideally turn anything that you can or want to into a way to control tech, uh, sort of at its at its core. Uh, what it literally is is uh, a custom device built around the Raspberry Pi. There's two different devices right now, one that's in market and one that's pre-order, the Enable Play controller and the Enable Play controller Lite. Uh, the Enable Play controller has uh, a dual-channel microphone built into the box, too, and it's powered by the Raspberry Pi 4, nice. uh, which is great. I mean, you get multi-core processor right on the edge. We can do little bits of at least machine learning training, but we can definitely run machine learning models. Uh, but basically, with those those microphones, we're doing speech recognition offline on the device itself, and it gets personalized to the way that you speak. So outside of, of speech recognition and being able to say things like jump and being able to then hit the space bar... Uh, it's also learning your speech pattern along the way and also doing it in a more predictive way based off of what you create as a profile. Um, so the whole sort of setup is basically you, you get a device, you plug it in via USB to a computer, a game console, what have you. Uh, you download the app on Android or iOS. Uh, later this year will be on macOS and Windows as well. 
Um, and then you create profiles. And essentially what the profile is, is a mapping of the different types of inputs to what you want it to do. So it could be as simple as like, if I say jump, that should hit the space bar, or as complex as if I say open Visual Studio Code, it will you know pull up Finder on the Mac or, or hit the Windows search and type code into it, then hit enter and then create a new file in VS Code with macros. Some of the stuff that's, that's coming up uh, recently is also being able to share those profiles. So partnering with both software developers and people that are, are working with people with disabilities to create their profiles to, to turn them into something that can be shared and then built upon too, which is nice. So you're not always starting from scratch, not a whole bunch of manual work to get up and running. But basically, once you have a profile, you, you go to your device page in the app, you just pick which one of your profiles you want to start using, and then you choose what inputs you want. So there's literally just like a list of cards with buttons that are like, start the microphone, start expression controls, start tilt controls, start hotkeys, uh, start dictation mode, do remote typing. So I'll go through sort of each one of those inputs, but before we before we jump sure. into, into the next part, one question I did want to ask, particularly you're looking from a privacy point of view, you mentioned that this is offline speech recognition. So yeah. from a privacy standpoint, that's not ever going up to your servers. That's on-device no. speech processing. That's right. Same thing with expression controls too. So all the computer vision stuff is running on device. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I, there's two sides to it, right? So the original prototypes I built, they, they're all using cloud services for speech recognition. They're using Azure Cognitive Services, mm-hmm. which is a great tool. Oh, yeah. Uh, but there's basically there's two issues. There's performance, or three issues. There's performance problems for doing real time, especially in something like gaming, where all inputs got to be super fast. Yeah. Instead of having to record the audio, then send it up via an HTTP request to a server, then get the the you know string back as to what was processed, and then do something with it, we're just executing it in real time in a predictive way offline. There's also price. So when you run the model offline. There's no, you know, streaming service cost to, to hitting someone's cloud service, like a cognitive services or uh, same thing would be for like GCP's speech to text or, or AWS's transcribe too. But that was important to me. You know, if I'm going to make something that's accessible, it, it should be a one-time price by the device and go. And if I was going to try to basically support, you know, 30,000 people using it, maybe, you know, 10 hours a month, you know, playing games... I'm going to start racking up a five-figure bill every month. It's a, it, and there's no way to you know put that that cost back on someone else to cover. So build the models, run them on the edge. Uh, it's super great. And then, of course, privacy, right? It, I wanted to build something that people could be comfortable having in their family room right next to their Xbox or having right next to their PC while they're working or while they're playing games and know that it's listening and know that they're they're using their face and their camera to do stuff, but also know that no one else is seeing that. Everything is is owned by you. And that's that sort of like was important from the core in order to get to the point of, of saying that I've got devices that can really help people, not I've got the, a device that's sort of a neat prototype uh, that, you know, would be way too expensive and, and not private to run. Absolutely. Because those are genuine concerns that people have. They don't want, oh, yeah. you know, big cloud. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with cloud services at all. You know, yeah. Azure, AWS, Google Cloud Platform, they are wonderful technologies that serve a purpose. But we also have to be conscious of, of privacy. So thank you, Alex, because that's a that's a big passion of mine. So thank you for addressing that. So let's let's um, sort of jump back in. So obviously we talked sure. about speech. So there, there's a couple other types of controls. Well, I guess one one other thing with speech too. This is a little more experimental still, uh, but there's also dictation mode. So what you can do in the in a profile is basically say what commands you want to use to start dictating. So I could be playing a game, you know, let's say I'm playing like an online game and there's like a, a chat box mm. in the bottom left too. I might be using voice commands to control my character, but then if I want to start talking to people, I could say message and then start speaking what I want or say type in what I want. 
Uh, I use it personally when I'm writing code in like Visual Studio Code uh, to jump in and say comment and then type my comment out. Uh, so the comment will trigger, you know, a slash slash, or if I'm in Python or a C language, it'll it'll play the pound, and then it'll type what I'm saying, <clears throat> which is really really cool. If you pair that up with something like GitHub Copilot, you're you literally code hands free. So you're just saying your comment, and then hit, saying enter, and then t- it'll start to stub out some of the things. And then there's other voice commands for macros and stuff. So I can say like, you know, comment, create a loop from zero to one hundred, enter, create a new function. And then GitHub Copilot's going to fill in the rest of like what it should do to loop from zero to one hundred. So it, that's a really cool uh, experience in that you know I've started to work with a couple groups in like high school level computer science classes to start using that as well, which is exciting. That's awesome, and that's you know I'm I've got a friend who has a medical condition that makes it difficult for him to type. He relies on, um, admittedly, an older version of a phone we've had getting that running on his new newer machines of um, uh, Dragon. Yeah, Dragon yeah. Natural Speaking, speaking, which again, you know, the, the technology underlying that is fantastic, but it's not exactly accessible because the price point of yeah. Dragon is it's shocking. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things where the the value it brings is so high, but you know, I, it doesn't. Things don't need to be that expensive, no. especially if it's there to be an assistive device. It's one of the things that you know, as I started to really jump into the space, that I learned very quickly is how expensive some of these setups are. So like I mentioned this earlier, but I'm starting to work with like departments of education and school districts and things like that. Uh, and with like speech therapists and occupational therapists and, and in talking to them, you know, I'll, I'll talk through what it can do and all that. And they'll be like, okay, but like how much does it cost? And I'm like, well, it's 250 bucks that, and they're like, okay, but like, what's the, what's the monthly service fee? What's the, what's the custom support fee? I was like, it's just, it's just it's the just device. Yeah. <laughs> so just buy it. And they're like, Wait, so it's not like $30,000 because like that's what we pay for this one very specific little device plus like another $10,000 a year for like support and yeah. and all the training materials. It's like no, it's 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 250 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and the smaller ones are even cheaper than that. They they're like I think they're 150 right now. So it's that's it. It's just buy it. It, it. You get constant updates, you know, as we work through more features and add new things. Uh there's no reason that that this tech that can help people should be you know, outrageously expensive. And, and, you know, a lot of this stuff that I've seen, it's like they charge that because they expect either insurance companies to cover it if it's something that sort of bleeds between medical assistive devices mm. and, and like educational, especially, uh, or it's something that they know they can sort of force like a school district to have to get grant money for in order to afford. But like that also means that uh, and what I, I've seen lately in talking to people about like what that ends up making a sort of like a, a, a cascading effect is like, certain schools that can't get money for devices like that can't support those students. So either those students just get under-supported, kids have to get moved to another school. That's also just putting pressure on the family. And mm. and then also on the other district that has to still support, you know, getting a kid across different towns and, and districts and things like that, just to get to a place that has the money uh, to be able to support using those devices or, or those sort of special education programs, which... To me, like that, that just sounds so backwards. Like we're we're just creating disadvantages for the sake of of someone needs to make money uh, off yeah. these devices. And I'm all in favor of of you know the the things you make in in charging what they're worth. But yeah, you know it, it to some extent. There's definitely this sort of feeling of some people taking advantage uh, in this process. I would agree with that. And let's not forget, you know, the damage that can be done by you know kids. You know, established at a school, they've made friends, and then all of a sudden, because the school can't get that funding, they have to move to another school and make whole new friends. And you know, we know that for people, 
particularly people with certain disabilities, that can be really challenging. Yeah, definitely. So, I, you know, no, I'm, I'm with you 100% that if you make something good and it's a useful product, you should be able to charge what that product is worth. And there is a really fine line. You know, unfortunately, we've now got this, you know, we've talked about it previously on, on this show. We've got this race to the bottom because we've got junk apps in the various app stores. Mm -hmm. People just assume that every bit of software costs 99p. Right. It, it does, <laughs> or 99 cents. Yeah. It doesn't, genuine work goes into software. And I think we need to maybe educate people on the value of hardware and software. But anyway, that's a little bit of a rant. But um, one question, because obviously, you know, we're talking about this is a platform, but I think the impression I'm getting is that you are constantly adding new features because yeah. you can just update the software that's running on, you know, the base level of a Pi. Yeah. Which means that not only are they only having to pay once, they're getting more features. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of more traditional devices and maybe more traditional software don't give that yeah. frequent up, that frequency of updates. Now, I'm sure they do updates, but at the same time, what's the cost of those? What's the frequency of those? And also, are, is the hardware even able to be updated? Because... You know, when you're looking at something that is more of a dedicated hardware solution that's been custom built, not saying that Enable Play isn't custom, but it's based, would it be fair to say it's based on more uh, commodity hardware rather than, yeah. you know, specialist? Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, I'm not a hardware engineer. I, I've, I've done a little bit of work to, to customize it, but it's definitely built on, on a lot of existing hardware. I mean, like the Raspberry Pi uh, Zero 2W. Is mm. the the only thing that powers the the light version of the controller? Uh, there's wow. nothing else. It's literally just that wrapped in a nice like black case that is sort of slimmed and sleek. There's nothing else on it because there nothing needs to be. It's there to connect to the internet, connect to Bluetooth, and connect to USB and and be a hub for for executing you know small models. And and since they packed in a multi core processor in the new Raspberry Pi Zeros, it's you know, it's insane what you can do with those things. So let's talk a little bit about the other types of inputs, because obviously the yeah. audio, so you've, you've got a microphone built into the... Yes, two, dual channels, those two microphones that, that basically listen in stereo, which is important for speech recognition, because mm. if you train audio and speech recognition the same way that, that people hear and listen, we've got two ears, we sort of hear in stereo. Yeah. Uh, so doing that with with the audio input for commands is important too. But the other, there's a lot of other types of inputs. So there's speech recognition and dictation, uh, there's also tilt controls, which is the ability to use like your phone or tablets, uh, gyroscopes and accelerometers to actually do controls. So oh, wow. especially useful for people that have gross motor control issues, but and, and usually with all, like people in that are wheelchair bound and have mm. uh, their phone like mounted, they can actually use it as a mouse by just sort of moving it in little bits or use it to then execute commands. You can control the sensitivity of that to like hyper hypersensitive. Uh, which is really cool. So great for sort of turning like the 3D space into 2D mouse movements, but also like if you wanted to, you know, just open a new file by shaking your phone or, or tilting it up. Uh, or uh, one that I've seen a few people use is like if they're they're using like a, a Word or a Google Docs or something, shaking their tablet to like delete what they were writing. Uh, sort That's of a cool. satisfying like, go away! Like, <laughs> and it just wipes the line out, which is fun. Um, so that one's useful. The the biggest one uh, is expression controls, which is the ability to recognize body gestures and face expressions. Wow. Um, so it's running offline computer vision on on your your phone, tablet, or computer, uh, and basically what we're doing is is finding all the different facial landmarks 
uh, that we can. It's around like 300 different points. So from a number of points on your eyebrows, around your eyes, inner outer lip, ears, head position and movement, uh, your your lips, your uh, wrinkle in your head, your, your the, the way that your mouth is moving, all those different things. And, and we take all those points and then we train a model to recognize different movement sets. Uh, so with that right now, there's currently 18 different commands you can do with your face. Uh, from raising and lowering your eyebrows to opening and closing your mouth, to smiling to tilting your head left and right and up and down, oh, turning wow. your head, um, winking, uh, and even certain now like different types of uh, sort of fine mouse, uh, fine mouth movements. Um, with like you can like do like a kissing face, like a pucker to do something, or sort of grit your teeth, and that can be different than a smile. Um, and it's extremely useful for people that have you know, no use of their hands in fine motor mm. controls, people who are, who are quadriplegic, for example, uh, to be able to use their face and their head position to, to control their computers as well. Cool thing is you can also combine that with voice commands if you are someone that can speak. So now you've got the whole power of, of speech plus uh, your ability to move your head. And you can even, in, in our most recent update, uh, use your head to control your mouse movement as well. So I can like literally think of it like your head as a joystick that's moving your mouse oh. around. Uh, there's other tools out there that have done that in the past. They sort of call them head mouse uh, mm-hmm. types of tech, but it's all built in uh, again. And you can still use that then with face expression separately. So uh, I'm going to be putting out probably a video in the next week or so of, of folks using that in playing uh, Halo Infinite, where the, the wow. whole head movement of moving the character is done with your real head. And then like things like shooting and reloading are done with raising your eyebrows and smiling. Um, whole game awesome. basically then played you know, hands-free, which is pretty cool. Then, uh, yeah, so the, the, there's also some nuances to that, too. You know, you made a, a great point earlier around <clears throat> everyone's disability is different, including, you know, people with the same sort of medical condition, but it, how it affects them is totally different. And so what that means to using that with expression controls could mean that your sort of resting position could be completely different than someone else that, yeah. you know, on paper has the same disability as you. And what we've done to sort of work around that is, is just like we did with speech recognition is personalize it to you. So once you start expression controls, enable play starts reading your, your default resting position and using that as a baseline. Uh, you can also then just manually tell it like, hey, this is my new baseline. Yeah. Uh, so for example, like if you, if you naturally have your head leaning like left versus right and you want to be able to use head leaning, the distance that you lean your head left is going to be different than the angle that it is right. Yeah. And it's based off of that. And you can also control individual sensitivities for every single expression oh, that wow. you can run. So, like, again, if you if you naturally lean left, you're going to want to have a higher sensitivity to detect that you're leaning further left versus mm. uh, you might want to have a lower sensitivity to when you're leaning right, meaning you'd have to lean further right than you would have to lean left to trigger Got commands. It. Yeah. And, of course, I assume that this is all – you said this is coming from the smartphone or tablet – so the fact that we are seeing much better cameras, particularly, yeah. I, I assume this is going to be using front-facing yeah. cameras. You can, yeah, you can switch, but yeah, for the most part, it's probably a little bit easier to see yourself while you're doing it. But yeah. um, for, for for example, like uh, speech therapists that are going to be doing it with a client or with a patient, um, it, they might want to point it at them and, and they might want to have right. the, the you know, therapist the looking at it rather than the, the person, so... Uh, but yeah, we get, for the most part, it's you know everyone seems to use the the front facing camera. And you're right, the higher quality cameras make the biggest difference because 
if you've got a fuzzy camera, I mean, it can work, right? It does yeah. work on lower end phones. It won't be as fast in the recognition side if you have like a, a lower end processor, but the higher quality makes a big difference for sure. I guess I'm thinking particularly, you know, the, the latest generation iPhones with those incredible front facing cameras. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I think the only, why do I not use, there is a reason I don't use the front facing camera on my iPhone for shooting videos. And I think it's just so I've got a little bit, the, the back facing cameras just have a little bit more focus control, yeah. a bit more, you know, but they are fantastic. And what amazes me here is that we're not talking about having to go out and buy separate camera hardware, right. separate microphones. You are using stuff that people already have in their smartphones and the smartphone accessibility gets better and better because you, you know I'm I'm an iOS guy uh, but iOS's accessibility is just incredible yeah um because you've got that wonderful accessibility to be able to control the smartphone it makes using enable play even easier i would imagine definitely yeah i mean like a lot of the built-in accessibility tools for app developers too makes it a lot easier and and a big part of then making the enable play app accessible itself comes down to design mm-hmm. uh so the app is designed with with very direct uh sort of get to action uh approach there's no there's no sort of like neat, weird, you know, newer UX approaches. It's it looks good. I'll I'll you know pat myself on the back, I guess, for that. But like, it's not like it's a you know a system looking app. But um, it's simple. You get cards. You get the label of what you're supposed to be doing with that card, and you get a, a big button to press to move on. Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 doing it in the right order and making sure that things are labeled right means that things like screen readers can can rip through it really quickly to get the person to where they want. And having predictable places. Uh, on the physical screen, it makes it easier for people, even if they're not using a screen reader, to know where they should be tapping and moving in order to get to the next step. Because, you know, something like Enable Play is an app that you use a lot if you're using the devices, mm. right? It's not something you just, like, use it to set up the device and you're off and running. You know, you're going to be going to your device page and doing your different inputs and starting expression controls yeah. and starting tilt controls, turning the mic off and on, like, pretty frequently. So it's important to have very consistent placement very consistent expectations and clear indicators to the user as to where they are in the app uh, so they know what they can do next. And, the, you know, tools like the OS and, and the built-in accessibility tools make that a lot easier. Uh, but even, like, app developer tools then within that make it extremely easy. And then it's just making sure that the UX works for those uh, scenarios as well. And that's a lot, you know, that's a lot of effort to put in. You know, credit to yourself, and uh, Alex, that's something... Obviously, that's something you're, you've really focused on because, you know, I've used some of these, again, not anything like Enable Play, but I've used screen readers. Um, Jaws on Windows yeah. being a prime example. Horrible UX. Yeah. Really horrible. Sorry. If a Jaws developer is listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> I haven't used it recently. But, you know, going back to that pricing, I was working in a role, and this was back in the Windows NT four days, and they had to buy a copy of Jaws just so that I could have a screen yeah. Magnifier. I didn't need any of a screen reader, just, just a magnifier. And oh, the UX was just, it was awful. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, obviously at home, I'm on a Mac, I'm like, obviously oh, it's easy, just, you know, con- command and scroll wheel, and I've got a Zoom. And it is, you know, UX is really important. In fact, we're going to have um, a guest on a future episode talking about UI and UX, not from necessarily a, a disability accessibility point of view, but starting to adapt accessibility for um, things like gender pronouns, making sure that technology is more accessible for everyone, because that's one of my big passions, is everyone should be able to access technology um, fairly. You know, my grandfather is a prime example 
honestly, if if this was ten years ago, because he's ninety six, bless him. If this was ten years ago, I would get him a get him a tablet. Uh, or if he was ten years younger, probably be a better expression. Mm-hmm. I'd get him something and get him set up with something like enable play because yeah. I would love him to be able to do you know video calls with a family. He couldn't touch the tablet. You know, we have a, a horrible job getting him to even change TV channels. Well, uh, as far as my grandfather's concerned, there are only two TV channels, ITV and BBC One. <laughs> That's all he ever goes between because all the soap operas are on, on ITV and everything else is on BBC One. Um, but that aside, it is fantastic. So we were talking sort of a little bit pro, uh, pre-show about how then... So we've got all these inputs... Yep. from Enable Play, from the app, and from the device itself in terms of a microphone. Now, those are all fantastic. You can say, okay, do this. So, for example, when you say jump, it will do spacebar. Yeah. Um, now, that's sort of hinted at something. This then translates all those commands to either macros or USB HID, which is human interface device, if I remember yep. my... that's yep. right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I remember a little bit about Apple's... I did a little bit of learning of Apple's spec, so I understand the HID, uh, HID spec. Yep. So once, so you've got the device, you've got your enable play. This then plugs in via USB to yep. a host to a host machine, so it'll be that a Windows machine, a Mac. And then we talked a little bit about uh, the console. So let's start off with the desktop side. Are there any limitations... With the desktop side, uh, or is it just a straightforward? Look, as lo- it sees it as a keyboard and mouse or, or a gamepad. So anything that it can do, yep. the OS can do gamepad-wise, mm-hmm. is just exactly. Doable. Exactly. Prim- primarily, uh, folks are using it as keyboard and mouse. So, like, if you plug it into a Mac, it'll it'll pop up the window of like, hey, let's help you set up your your keyboard, mm. uh, just like as if you plugged in any other keyboard or or your mouse. Same thing with Windows. So. Uh, it is. It, it's using the Linux gadget system underneath from the device on the firmware level to register itself and, and tell the host machine what it's capable of and and what channels to expect to read from when it's when it's hitting the uh, um, the HID uh, 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 fields from the device to know what we're trying to actually say. Um, and so you plug it in. It recognizes it as a, as a keyboard and mouse or a gamepad. Uh, or it's all three packed into one, so it's reg- it's like a mega gadget, um, and then you're off and running, right? So if you uh, are connecting to it over Bluetooth, then using your your phone or tablet near it will will just send a request over Bluetooth to the device, which then sends it over USB. Uh, or if your device is connected to the internet, then you can send the underlying commands uh, over the internet to it too, which can be cool for sort of longer distance or remote control stuff uh, as oh, well. Nice. Yeah. So just so just to be clear, so I understand what you're So the enable play device connects to the host machine via USB. Yep. And then the app for controlling enable play and for gesture recognition, the tilt controls. Um, now, do people have an option to use the dev- the phone's microphones? Not yet, but it's coming. It's okay. uh, it's something that that the light controller is especially uh, sort of requires because the the light controller doesn't have the mics built in, right. so you have to use your your phone or tablet's mic. So yeah, eventually it'll it, it'll be using the exact same model that's personalized for you. Uh, just sort of working through some kinks on getting that to work at the app level. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, and so and that can either be then a Bluetooth control, as you said, or network access, which yep. is, is fantastic because again, Bluetooth can be yeah, hmm. it's a little issue sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's a fair yeah, um, especially in busy in a busy you know if you've got a lot of Bluetooth stuff already, yep. the last thing you want is it dropping out, right? Um, which is awesome. So 
one question for you. So obviously, on Windows has far better gamepad support out of the box than macOS does. Yeah, I tell macOS is really just more keyboard and mouse. macOS doesn't seem to have a good gamepad model. Yeah, at the it doesn't. I mean, it's not really like they don't really target you know gaming anyway. Yeah. So I mean, like it can. Uh, it just it people just don't really use it that way. I guess so. Using yeah. keyboard and mouse. Uh, uh, USB protocol is sort of the best move for Mac. And I guess another on the back of that then, so because the Enable Play um, device is can be connectable to via USB, let's say I've got a uh, an iPad yeah. which has USB-C support or you know I've just got a Lightning to USB-C, can I then plug the Enable yeah. Play into any, U- is, is it any USB compatible yeah. device? Yep, it, it, I've I've uh, tested it on iPad Pro. I know it works there, uh, and also on uh, the Lenovo A series tablets for Android tablets. So anything that nice. can support mouse and keyboard, yes. The the only thing that's challenging with the bigger controller uh, is power output to it because right. the power is coming a hundred percent from the host device. So like if you plug it into like your phone, your phone probably is not going to output enough battery uh, power to the yeah. device to run the speech recognition model. It may still be able to do the the other remote commands and things like that, since it's not running any model on on the actual enable play device at that point. But uh, that's sort of the the biggest limiting factor right now. The light controller requires far less power, right. uh, and and you know what I'm trying to test right now is like, is that something that you can basically plug into your phone, slap mm-hmm. it to the back of it, and now you've got you know a more accessible way of controlling your own phone and tablet too so it's one of the big goals of it as well that's really cool and you know from a from personal experience um where is it the way i would solve that on a usb c side and of course only um only alex can see this i'll put a link to this is something like this which is the anchor usb c hub and i don't know how well you can see but it's got usb c power delivery input which means it should then pass that power yeah if that's the case then it should work as yeah. long as it can get enough power to the device. <clears throat> and I think the Apple have a, for lightning-based devices like the iPhones and the non-mini uh, Pro iPads, they have a USB adapter which has a lightning pass-through, which should, again, you know, there might be things you have to do, but it's really cool that that's the case. Now, one of the questions and challenges I asked you about pre-show, and I wanted to make sure I understood this a little bit before I started rambling, but game consoles... Yeah. Because we've we've talked a lot about about you know on desktop PCs on laptops and phones and tablets, but my experience has been with game consoles. Every platform has their own control system, and it becomes complicated. So how how can people solve that challenge? I think we hinted that Xbox have already done work in the accessibility control, and because of Xbox nature, it's probably a little bit easier on the Xbox side. But yeah, yeah can you, can you speak to consoles a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Xbox in general is, is hands down the most accessible console. Uh, the, the amount of features they have for uh, things like being able to use two controllers to control the same character. There's a name for it, I'm blanking. Um, that that alone is, is a major feature that the others don't have. On top of that, obviously, Xbox adaptive controller is huge. And and there's even more features on the OS level as well. Uh, so, so in the case of Xbox, they also have much better support for keyboard and mouse and like third-party gamepad. Uh, usually, it's more on the keyboard and mouse side than they want you to just plug in any gamepad to get off and running. So, uh, for for a lot of games that then support keyboard and mouse, especially and the Xbox operating system itself, Enable Play works out of the box. You just plug it into the Xbox. If you wanted to play a game that doesn't support those those inputs. Uh, then you'd need to use a converter. And then that's also true for the Switch uh, and for the PlayStation 4 and 5 as well. 
Uh, there's there's a few different converters out there. They're like little small devices. You also just plug them into USB, and then you plug a naval play into that. Right. Uh, and essentially, it's go. What those devices are doing is they're registered as as third parties, uh, valid third party devices for Sony and for Nintendo, uh, so that they can do the custom protocol for for PlayStation and for the Switch, uh, which means that. They can then just take my inputs, which are just going to be, again, like the uh, keyboard, mouse, or gamepad uh, HID protocols, and uh, turn those into the native level. And then, you know, they sort of have their own app for mapping stuff. It, it does become a little bit of a pain mm. uh, on the user because now they have to not just use Enable Play to, to build out their profiles, and now they got to download another app, which is not as accessible and is, you know, even for me, a little bit challenging to use to then remap other things. Um, or go back into a nail play and completely reconfigure it based off what device they're using. So if like if you're going to use it like 100%, like you want to play games on PlayStation 5, for example, with Enable Play, it's not too bad because it's sort of a one-time setup thing. But like if you're going to switch and you're going to you know bring your Enable yeah. Play controller to your Switch, you're going to bring it to your Xbox, you're going to bring it to your PC, Mac, and, and PlayStation, then it can be a little bit of a pain to try to do the same thing. But there's converters out there. The, the eventual plan and hope is to be able to... Uh, add support natively to enable play to basically switch the protocol that it's doing by recognizing the device that it's in uh, to to be able to support PlayStation uh, GamePad and Nintendo Switch Pro Controller uh, as an output as well uh, as an output from enable play as an input into those devices yeah. uh, to be able to play them natively. But uh, there's there's requirements there to to work directly with the you know Nintendo and, and with Sony to make that happen. But there's there's definitely some work to do. Yeah, I was going to say because that will require you know whereas you know Xbox because Microsoft has done such a good job on accessibility because Windows has USB head, Linux has USB head, Mac OS has USB head, you know, and a Raspberry Pi. Um, because again, you know, and one thing we should probably mention is a if you are a retro gamer, the Retro Pi project again that's USB head. So yeah. a, an Enable Play will work perfectly if you want to go back and play those retro games. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine, and um, I'm going to make an assumption, but we we can definitely find out for certain. <laughs> if you've got a Mr. Multisystem, I would imagine that um, because that's based on Mr., that should support USB HID, but we can find out for certain through uh, Neil and um, Richard. If it uses, you know... HID USB, we're in business. Like, yeah. any, if it can output enough power, <laughs> and again, you know, that's where thing, you know things can get really exciting. But we were saying pre-show, it would be fantastic, and I doubt anyone from Nintendo or Sony is listening to this right now. But it would be fantastic if Nintendo and Sony just said, okay, as well as our own control scheme, we'll natively support USB HID for accessibility reasons. Yeah. But I think we were saying we can understand why they wouldn't because they, again, it goes back to that we'd rather make money. Right. Uh, maybe that's an unfair. Their priority would be to make money over universal control because what, as well as opening that up to tools like uh, Enable Play, it does then start to mean that you can use any gamepad. On there, so they maybe lose money on official game pads and things like that, but yeah, it, I'd say it's, it's a small price to pay. Yeah, it's it's the money side for sure. It's also like you know, it gives them the ability to create competitive modes, and and there's also things that like you know, each one of them does that is unique. That's not mm. you know going to be supported on on the the HID protocols like like motion controls, like motion controls, yeah, and on the on the PS5 controller or like the touchpad on the PlayStation controller, and they have now their own microphone inputs too. Yeah, like all, all those different things. Like you, you, 
to some extent, you have to have your own protocol to it, um, unless you were going to do, you know, essentially what a naval play is doing and like take those different inputs on the device level and then map them to something else on the HID side. But then, you know, you sort of open yourself up for trouble there. So, yeah. you know, it's it's a competitive thing, I think. It's but it's also proprietary work, um, and you know, they're trying to to turn those into the new ways to play games, which is awesome. Uh, it's exactly what I want to do too. You know, it's great to build assistive devices, but uh, you know, it's also just you can create some really cool immersive experiences with with some of the enable play stuff too. Like one of my favorites is uh, if anyone out there plays uh, Overwatch, uh, one of my favorite characters is Doomfist. And if you don't know, he has a giant fist. If from the name, that should be a little bit uh, apparent. But yeah. he, one of his attacks is he sort of like holds it back and then like lunges forward and it sends him flying across the map. And uh, one of the things I said from the very beginning when I was building expression controls is like I wanted to have the ability to like do the lean and then lean forward towards my screen. Yeah, to actually uh, to send it because I find myself doing that when I'm playing the game anyway, even before I built enable play. That like I'm always like and go. Uh, so now actually having it work is pretty cool. And things like you know and and because although this is obviously primarily enabled for accessibility. Actually, because look, you know, if you haven't got disabilities, you can still do facial gestures, oh, yeah. Yeah. and you can have a lot of fun pairing it with. You know, you could have your actual controller, so you could, for example, have a regular controller, and let's say you're playing a flight sim. Yeah, you could do the sort of the leans yeah, exactly. to, to bank, and you know, I think that's fantastic. So, and this is an example where accessibility can be for everyone. Exactly, um, and you know you could have two because I assume that each each enable play device is effectively the equivalent of a physical controller. Yeah. So if exactly. you had two people who needed that, they would need two devices. Is that correct? Yeah, because I mean, if you're going to play two at the same time, then yeah, you'd have two different devices. Um, or you know, you can if you're switching off, then just use the one. But then you're sharing accounts and profiles, and you know. Like can, can create messy relationships. <laughs> yes, yeah. The last thing you want. Yeah. So yeah, but and again, going back to sort of the, the price points, the as we said earlier. So there's two devices. There's the enable play control. Is it controller? Yep. yep. Enable play controller, and then enable play controller light. So the controller is based on a Raspberry Pi four, and yep. that is. Did you say two fifty at the moment? Two fifty is the is the retail price. Uh, I we also partner with uh, like. Game accessibility companies, therapists, and and again like departments of education and schools. And if you're going through that route, then we give discounts on those devices to be able to you know support getting more of them into schools and into people's you know houses and stuff like that too. But awesome. if you're just going to buy a retail, it's two fifty. Yeah, and that's in stock at the moment. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, those ones are in stock. Um, they 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 come in waves, uh, as as you may know, the Raspberry Pi. Uh, yep. Yeah. So it, it's really hard to get those the Raspberry Pi devices because there's sort of a shortage of of you know silicon out there. So, uh, but we you know I partnered directly with with Raspberry Pi now to be able to do bulk Pi orders and stuff. So I don't have to go through retailers to buy that stuff. It's you know on the on the business to business side of things, which is exciting. So we can actually support more and more orders that are coming through. That's awesome. I love the fact that you've partnered directly because, you know, that is one of my biggest things that I love about the Raspberry Pi project is where their beginnings were and what their inspiration was. Their inspiration goes all the way back to the Computers in Schools program here in the UK. Yeah. Um, you know, I think even up to, even said, the inspiration was a lot of the original BBC Micro. Yeah. 
So it goes back to that computers in school, which made technology accessible. Yeah. And that, I mean, would it be fair to say, Alex, that that is at the fundamental core what Enable Play is all about? Absolutely. And, you know, Raspberry Pi is, is a big inspiration for that, too. Um, you know, I, I, I think making technology more accessible, especially in schools, is one of the, the biggest gaps that we see. And when it's not, it creates a compounding issue because people who can't access technology at younger ages, and we're introducing it at younger and younger oh, yeah. ages, and people like Raspberry Pi are, are really spearheading that. And I think that's great. But the problem is if, if an individual student can't access technology the same way as their peers then they're going to fall behind at an accelerated rate, uh, you know, moving forward, both through school and, and into adulthood, too. Because everything we do, especially in, in the, the sort of Western hemisphere here, is driven by tech, right? It's, yeah. it's, you cannot get away without knowing how to use a computer anymore. And so the more difficult it is for someone, the more difficult their life's going to be going forward. Uh, I talked about it a little bit on, on, uh, on Twitter during Global Accessibility Awareness Day a couple weeks ago. And, you know, I, I was telling the story of uh, someone that, that is using Enable Play at the school. Uh, I didn't obviously name a student, but like sort of their story, which is, you know, coming up from uh, elementary school, where we start teaching typing classes mm. in computer labs. And, you know, even if your, your disability is not something that sort of shows, right, which most disabilities aren't, uh, things that are, that are visible, you know, you have tremors in your hands and you have a harder time typing while your, your peers are moving faster. Uh, then you get to the point where you're in high school and uh, let's say you have something like dyslexia or even still like hand tremors and a difficulty using a keyboard, you're going to spend up to 10 times longer writing a research paper than a student who can use a computer because all that research is being done on the computer, all of the writing is being done on the computer. Someone who can just you know, browse the internet, get to their primary resources and then rip through writing something in Word or Google Docs Versus you as someone with a disability needing to struggle through using Chrome to find the right resources yeah. to slowly navigate around on the page to then find it to then actually type things up. Uh, you know, how how is that like not the worst problem we see in technology oh, right now? Like it's such a low level issue that we start introducing to kids at, at younger and younger ages. And that's like, to me, one of the biggest problems I want to solve is let's just make all of this tech from the ground up more accessible by just building tools that are more accessible for everybody that meets people where they are with their needs rather than, you know, trying to force people to fit the mold of what developers and engineers have created for their current devices and software. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, you, you've made some excellent use cases, you know, for students, for education. And of course, I, you know, I think of, you know, the, the older generations well who might have, you know, as you said, tremors. We might have problems with, you know, typing. We might never have learned to type, but you give them dictation mode. Yeah. These people can speak, and you know, I take the case of my grandparents. They can speak for, you know, for decades. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know, and, and making that accessible. And I think one of the, the really cool things that I see about enable players, whereas something traditional like a piece of software has to be installed, you know, and set up and trained. Yes, that's true with uh, Enable Play, but let's say all of a sudden um, your laptop dies. Yeah. You just get a new laptop, plug Enable Play in. Exactly. And you're up and running because 
none of that training was on the laptop. You can you can then move platforms easily. You can have, I mean, for example, let, let's take someone in a work environment. Let's say you've got someone yeah. who, and of course, workplaces should be supporting their staff and making sure that they have accessible tech. That price point makes it much more accessible than some traditional tools. Right. But also, let's say that someone's bought one of an Enable Play controller themselves. They can just take that between work and home. Yeah. It's a, it, relatively speaking, this is a, a small device. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, it's not complicated, and it means that they've got accessibility wherever they go. Exactly. So, and, and it's the same thing with students too. They bring it to the computer lab, they bring it to their classroom, and then they bring it home. And it's the one device you plug it in, and, and you're using the same, using it the same way you would uh, on any of those devices. And it's it definitely true for the workplace, which is something that um, you know I've been much more recently working on too. Which is like, you know, the same thing that we're talking about in schools exists in work too, and and especially in, in office environments yeah. where. If you're not making your workplace accessible and inclusive to people with disabilities, then they simply can't work there, and you're you're leaving people out. And at least here in the U.S., there's a, a staggering number of people with disabilities that can work. Right? They yeah. have the the mental aptitude to get the work done. They have the understanding of, of business too, but they cannot compete at the pace of other people that are able-bodied using their their existing laptops and tools. Yeah. And and it's the same exact issue. It's just because the, the keyboard and mouse or the keyboard and trackpad paradigm doesn't work as well for them. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, Enable Play helps solve too. Absolutely. So, Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure getting into some of the, you know, some of the details, explaining um, Enable Play. I, I'm fascinated um, by, by it. I think it's a wonderful technology. Um, I've seen, you know, some of the stuff you've been posting to Twitter. So, as we wrap up, if people want to learn more about Enable Play, um, and you know, obviously follow yourself as well, where can people find Enable Play? Where can people find you? And um, is there any sort of last, you know, last thoughts, but um, sort of resounding message you'd like to give out to people about an, an, about Enable Play? Yeah. So if you want to find Enable Play or me, again, I'm I'm Suave Pirate on the internet uh, on Twitter at Suave underscore Pirate. You can also try to find me as Alex Dunn. Uh, Enable Play is at enabledplay.com, E-N-A-B-L-E-D-E-L-A-Y.com. A uh, whole bunch of resources there and articles. Um, Microsoft did a great story about the background as well. It's on the homepage of azure.com right now, too. Uh, if you ever care to watch that, it's a nice five-minute video. Um, and the sort of last thing I, I would say is if, if you know someone who this can help support, come let me know. If there's schools or workplaces or... Uh, game accessibility groups that you think this could help, just let me know because those are the people I want to work with to help you know bring this to to more people and help them out. Um, that's that's basically it. You know, I want to make make all technology more accessible and just solve this problem before it gets out of hand even more. Awesome, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, um, folks. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode, which will of course include links to Alex's Twitter, to Enable Play, and to that front page of the Azure site over at Crosswise.net. You can, if I believe, if you're subscribed, you can leave comments um, there as well. Um, do let me know if there's any problems. You can also email podcast at crosswires.net. You can find us on Twitter at crosswiresmg. And of course, check out the YouTube channel because there is a video coming at some point soon once I actually film it. Uh, crosswires.net forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.